Welcome to Near and Far, the World Catholicism Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Buddy, Senior Research Scholar in the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology in Chicago. My guest today is Chris Herlinger, an international investigative journalist who specializes in covering humanitarian crises around the world. His work has appeared in major secular and religious outlets, including the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and the National Catholic Reporter. Much of his reporting in recent years has drawn attention to the realities of famine and hunger worldwide, and he traveled to DePaul University in Chicago to speak on one of the traditional works of mercy, in this case, Feeding the Hungry in the Current Era. He has written several books on the politics and economics of hunger with special attention to Haiti, Sudan, and elsewhere. The most recent is entitled Food Fight, Struggling for Justice in a Hungry World. Thank you, Michael. It's wonderful to be here. First question I'd like to put to you is to describe what it is you do. You've, you've mentioned at some point that you're a humanitarian journalist, and I'm not, I'm not sure everyone has a, has a clear idea what that might involve. That's a good question. I've never been asked that, but that's a very basic, that's a very, very basic question. I think we have to go back to the term humanitarian, which is uh, maybe has a couple definitions, but is, I think, basically um, a person, talking about a humanitarian now, someone who is concerned with the well-being of the world. And so what I do is report, if I can say, two things. One is uh, the actual problems of the world, be they hunger, social unrest, etc., um, poverty, and then the second definition, or the second set of this, would be reporting on what people, like sisters, like clergy, are doing to alleviate the problems of the world. So it's sort of a two-tier focus, the, the problems themselves and then the people trying to improve the situation in the world. As you've done this work over the years, you have developed a particular set of interests in questions of uh, global, global hunger and questions associated with that. In fact, you've done a series of books uh, on different aspects of those questions, one of which brings you here to DePaul University for a visit. Um, your book, Food Fight, Struggling for Justice in a Hungry World, was published in 2015 with photos from your colleague Paul Jeffrey. Can you explain a little why you chose the title you did um, and why that and, and how that opens up conversation as you've, as you've explored some of these issues? Sure. Uh, I should say Paul is a, he's a photographer. He's a United Methodist missionary. He's also, he also does writing, but his primary focus is on photographs. Um, he is a bit of a, uh, he loves to be provocative and uh, I give him credit. He's actually the one who came up with the title just as he was the one who came up with the title for our second book, which is called, which is about Haiti, and that book was called Rubble Nation. Now, those are both sort of provocative titles. Um, food Fight it actually may, it's actually less complicated than, than it may at first seem. Uh, what the title is suggesting is that the the fight for food is a fight for justice. And the fight to alleviate hunger is tied in with so many other things. But it is, it is a fight. It's a, it's a struggle. And hence the name 
food fight. I will say <laughs> I've seen this title for a number of other books, so we're not the only book. We, 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 don't, have the, we don't have a claim on, on the title, um, but I think it is, it's, it's intended to be provocative. Well, it's certainly a, it's a, it's a challenging book and a rewarding book on many different levels. You, you, you draw upon your personal experience and the reporting you've done in a variety of different locations around the world. Uh, it's informed by cutting-edge scholarly debate and policy questions. Uh, it's, it's really an, an impressive work in trying to bring together a lot of things that all too often are treated separately. Oh, thank you. Early in that book, you make the point that hunger hides in plain sight. Uh, that's a really intriguing observation. What might you mean by that? Well, I think what we what we meant by that is um, a couple things. One being, uh, I think many people have this association with the word hunger that it is only uh, tied in with, say, famine. Or starvation. It's not the case at all. There's something like a billion people in the world who are malnourished. Now, they're living day to day. They're not facing an everyday crisis, but they are facing day to day a real struggle to feed themselves. And in that sense, it is it is hidden. It's it's hidden in our own country, certainly. I mean, there are people who are struggling in our own country to put food on the table. Uh, but just I was saying earlier, I was in, uh, I was in Haiti uh, just last month in S September, and uh, I met a young man who, and I'm going to mention him in my talk tonight, um, s spoke English very well, uh, has an associate's degree in administrative, uh, administrative work. Uh, he is what we would call a go-getter in the U.S., uh, but he was, like many people, on the southern coast of Haiti last year, was affected by Hurricane Matthew. He's had, he's had a real struggle to just make ends meet. He does day jobs, you know. And uh, he's a friend of a fr friend, of a, friend of, of a Haitian friend. The three of us had lunch uh, in Lakai. This is the city where, where he lives. And um, I just knew from the way he was eating that he had not eaten in a couple of days. And I mean, this is a very sensitive thing to talk to people about, but I was able to open up the conversation a bit. And he said, yes, it is true that day in and day out, he has, he has trouble finding food. Now, he's surviving, but he is often hungry. So in that sense, uh, his situation is, is an example of hunger being hidden and I think, particularly for Western audiences, the idea of malnutrition sounds so much more benign than famine or starvation or, you know, sort of emergency lack of food. But yet right. the, there are significant consequences to chronic malnutrition over a period of months, weeks, years that are devastating. And I'm, I imagine you've probably seen that. Yes. Um, and I... I I've been to a number of places. Uh, now I'm thinking. Uh, I think Kenya was was one place where I was actually at a at a feeding center, and it was uh, it's quite clear that uh, I mean the real problem is with young people with infants, 
there's a there's a real there's been a real movement in the world to um, to make sure that uh, uh, children under the age of three uh, are fed uh, you know well because if if that doesn't happen in the first three years of their life, then they're they're going to be there's there's going to be serious problems later on. Among other things, they're going to be stunted. Uh, they're not they're simply not going to grow to the to the height that they should. And cognitive problems. And right, exactly. A whole range of other things right, that exactly. are associated with that. Exactly. As you've been to these different parts of the world, looking at both emergency circumstances and problems of longstanding duration. Um, could you take a step back and kind of give us a, an idea of the scale and scope of some of these questions about hunger? I mean, statistics are cold, but sometimes they can help people get an idea that what one, you know, that the concerns that you've brought to people's attention are more than just ep episodic or they're more than just limited in, in, in scale. Sure. It's, uh, it, it is, it is systematic. Um, now there are different figures from different organizations, but I, but roughly what we've got is there are about eight billion people in the world. Okay, uh, sometimes that's rounded off to ten, but it, it's we have about eight billion people. Um, of those, there there are about one billion who who are malnourished. They're not getting the food that they need to get in order to have a you know, fully functioning life. There are, there are another billion, say, who um, don't know where their next meal is going to come from. Uh, many of them, of course, eventually do find food, but there's still always this question mark. These are people who are living in poverty. So we have roughly 2 billion people out of 8 billion, that's a quarter of the world, um, is having, problem, having problems uh, getting food on the table. Now, that's a, that's a serious global issue, I think particularly when you start to think about food insecurity as a as a larger category that that jumps the jumps the tracks of a lot of people's expectations about who and where people are that have problems accessing adequate nutrition that food in, food insecurity is as I learned just reading your own work affects people in wildly just you know wildly different circumstances depending on things largely out of their control Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is this is uh, this is really key to to understanding the, the situation with hunger. I think oftentimes hunger is treated as something in in isolation, and I don't. It's certainly not not the way to look at it. I mean, it's. I know it's stating the obvious that uh, the basis of hunger in the end is is poverty. Um, but we sometimes we sometimes overlook that. Um, but there are, I mean, and there are, there are very, very big differences. I mean, in, here, here in the U.S., there are people who have trouble getting food on the table. That's because they're underpaid, they're unemployed, uh, there are systemic family issues. Um, that is different than, say, the situation in South Sudan, which is facing, facing a civil war. Um, not facing a civil war, it is experiencing a civil war. But um, that issue of war, and I hope we get into this more, uh, is actually one reason why uh, just in, in the last few weeks there's been news that uh, hunger 
is actually the numbers are actually up, and it is because people in places like like South Sudan are facing um, troubles due to civil conflict, and uh, that exasperates famine. That and then ex and all this is connected to climate change. Uh, these are all interrelated problems. Interrelated in a way that you brought out in your in your book, Food Fight, that it seems like the inescapable conclusion is that hunger's intrinsically a political matter. It's not a matter of a bad harvest or a single bad rainy season exactly. or something else. That these are exactly that these are part of systems that are human construct human constructed, you know, maintained by decisions. Um, absolutely, absolutely. For some people, that's that's a new starting point. How do you how, how do you start to open that conversation up in in ways that people can get a handle on? Because that's that's often so different from how at least people in the West have been taught to think about hunger. Right. That somehow it's I I I think we're past the point of using the image of you know God's will. Um, although I will say it's not. Too long ago, it was uh, what a century and a half ago that the that the British were using this uh, justification against the Irish. You know, it's God's will that we have to um, set set these Irish right. Uh, that was part of it. That was part of a decision that was made by the government in control of Great Britain. Um, in in our own time, uh, what we have. Let me give you an example. Uh, South Sudan. Uh, again, I was just there fairly recently. Uh, the world uh, was very happy and enthusiastic when this new country came into being in, uh, what was it, I think 2011. Yeah. And uh, there's just a lot of hope, a lot of hope for the country. But I, it's a fairly universal idea in South Sudan that the leaders of South Sudan have let people down. Um, and a lot of this has to do with uh, ethnic um, tensions, which I'm not sure by themselves are that important, but they are often used by politicians to secure power. And so we have a majority in South Sudan who are of the uh, ethnic group, the Dinkas. And uh, there has been an attempt to dominate the country. Uh, it's sometimes called uh, Dinkaization. And so there's, there's been a purposeful political decision by leaders, by the military, that uh, there's going to be ethnic conflict to try to isolate people who are, who are not Dinkas. So what has happened is people have been forced off their lands. They're going into... Not well, many people have left the country. Those are people who do that are called refugees. People who stay within the country, they're not refugees. They're internally displaced people. But it's it's still the same. It's still the same dynamic. People are, are stuck stuck in camps um, where they are fed, etc. But th this is not an easy or enjoyable life at all. Um, and but people have lost the ability to grow food. Now that has what that has done is that's made the situation worse for places already experiencing drought, and the drought again goes back we think to climate change. So 
all of these issues are <laughs> are intertwined, but political leaders have still have made this a situation that is far worse than it than it needs to be. So in that sense, uh, again, yes, it is it is political, and. Uh, uh, I, and yeah. it's not and it's not necessarily a phenomenon limited to Africa and stereotypes about oh, ethnic and tribal divisions. No, no, I mean, no, this no, was it's... the story of Europe and the Americas in right. the sense of mobilizing ethnic or communal bases to try to homogenize the population in order to boost the fortunes of one group or one way of way of doing things over over others. Exactly. The difference is much of that now is in the is in the in the history books rather than on the front page of the newspaper and so mm-hmm. it's easy to look and find differences in the processes of state building and consolidation and ethnic removal mm-hmm. but that's been part of the the history of the modern world for at least 500 years right right well and in in the situation in Haiti uh, it's, it's interesting there Haiti and South Sudan uh, two countries I've traveled to this past year, 2017, um, they're very different places in a lot of ways, but they do have some similarities. One of the similarities is that sort of uniformly, people uh, uh, people at the bottom, if I, if I can use that phrase, are uniformly distrustful of politicians, of their political leaders, their national leaders. They have no faith that these politicians, as they are often called, are going to uh, do much, don't have the will uh, to take care of people who are struggling. And there's a new president in Haiti. He was just elected last year. There's some hope uh, that he will, uh, he's made agriculture uh, a priority, and that's all good, but there's always this, this caveat. Uh, and it has to do with what you were talking about earlier, Michael, systems. Um, he wants to increase production in the country. Now, Haiti, yes, I, I mean, Haiti does need to produce more, but the problem is with this global system of agriculture, the country would be, in effect, exporting uh, food that it needs for itself. And... Uh, We've seen that we've seen that phenomenon uh, throughout history, going back to the British uh, in another country in India. Uh, there was a famine. Uh, good scholar, you no doubt know Mike Davis. Uh, forget his book, the title exactly, but it's Victorians, is in the title. Hol- the Vic- Holocaust, Victor- I don't know. Uh, it's a very very useful book though, and it he talks about how uh, this system of production was imposed on India to get farmers, Indian farmers, into the global system. Uh, but what was happening, there were natural things going on. There was a famine, but f- food was being exported to Great Britain and other countries while people were starving and dying in India. Now, that's the beginning of the 19th century. That's the beginning of, of a global system that we're still, that we're still contending with. One of the things that seems to be a commonplace in several of the cases that you've looked at closely is the collapse, or collapse is not the right word, the assault on the subsistence sectors of agriculture. Countries that may have been poor were at least able to grow enough food for their local consumption. People 
worked small farms. They, they cobbled together income with combinations of their own land and, and working other, other, right. other places. Right. The, the irony is that it seems to me, and I, I wonder how this fits with what you've seen, is that much of what the, much of the success, so-called, of mainstream ideas about development in the last 50 years have been to move out of subsistence agriculture forcibly in many cases, in exchange for agricultural production for export, right. cash crops, whether right. that's right. whether that's flowers or, or tobacco exactly. or, or something that will draw a high price when the market is good. Bananas. That's a, right. But right. the locals okay. can't eat that. It, right. that. That's at the expense of land, water, and everything else that would previously have gone to help people feed themselves. Well, and you also have this dynamic, which still to this day amazes me every time I'm I'm in Haiti. Uh, Haiti, uh, anyone who's been there can see it's a it 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 can be a rice producing country, but it it imports rice from the U.S., which is cheaper than the market price for Haitian rice. But you have to wonder why why is why is this happening? Uh, now, I mean, there is some Haitian rice, but overall, most of the rice that Haitians eat comes from the U.S. That's a that's a that's a crazy that's just an absolutely crazy system. Well, as you say, that's a product of structures rather than just happenstance. That's that's policies at all different kinds of levels that make it cheaper to import something that you could get down the street, you know, a couple of couple of decades ago, or you would generate for yourself. Right. In, uh, sort of a footnote to that, I know that after the after the earthquake in 2010, of course, we know. I mean, Bill Clinton was uh, widely associated uh, with, with with the recovery efforts. There's, as you know, some controversy about about that. Um, but he did he did make a remark saying, um, acknowledging that when he was president, this is when a lot of his policies actually went through. There's a long history. This goes back to the 19th century, but a lot of these have just become more intensified in the last 20, 20, 30 years. Uh, but Clinton said something about, he, he acknowledged that the, on the rice question, that yes, it was probably good for farmers in Arkansas who were growing rice, but it was not good for the farmers in Haiti. Now, I don't know how far Clinton took that. Um, his heart may have been in the right place, but in, in the end, he, I'm not putting it solely on Bill Clinton, but policies that uh, he, no, this, he and these others. Are, uh, these yeah. are bipartisan architectures that go back sure. decades. Right. So it's not yeah, it's not yeah. a partisan question. Right. 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 Yeah. So um, the problem is, of course, how do you how do you um, undo or try to change this this structure? It's not in this system, this uh, system of systems. Um, I'm not sure how you do that, but I, I, people are making an attempt, but it's not an easy thing to do. Can you tell me what you've seen in the, the experience of so-called land grabbing, which has become a, a pressing issue in some places? Um, I'm familiar with places in sub-Saharan Africa, Tanzania, uh, Ethiopia, where large tracts of land, tens and tens of thousands of acres, sometimes hundreds of thousands of acres, being given over to investors from abroad to grow food. Right. Except it's food to be exported then back to sure. Saudi Arabia, China, South Korea. Right. 
how does that how, how does that play into the dynamics that you're ob- observing? I think it just it's just it's another development in the phenomena that Mike Davis uh, talked about. We don't have in nearly all the world we don't have formal colonialism anymore, but we certainly have neo-colonialism. And um, my own experience with this this is not something I saw on sort of on recent trips uh, to Haiti and South Sudan. I'm not saying those problems don't exist there. But uh, I did see this uh, on a reporting trip to Argentina in, uh, when was it, uh, 2014. Um, And this ties in with another dynamic, uh, which we talk somewhat in our book about, the issue of indigenous peoples trying to reclaim lands. Um, In the Chaco region in Argentina, it's a a very hard scrabble place, Um, but there have been many instances of particularly Chinese companies coming in and doing, I, I think wood is, there's a big market for hard wood woods. or the hardwoods in China, obviously, but also soy, soya uh, for, for food, uh, for food consumption. Um, they have come in, taken over this land, this displaces indigenous people and it causes it causes social unrest. So on top of the politics, on top of the economic institutions that write the rules, then you add in climate change. <laughs> Do you does it, does it make your head spin sometimes when you when you see this kind of confluence of things? Uh, climate change, war. Neo colonialism, whatever whatever we call it, uh, this world system of food at work, it yes, uh, it it does it does make your head spin, and I I don't see. I mean, our book is descriptive, not prescriptive. We don't we don't have a we don't have a solution to this, but we we did acknowledge, I think, toward the end of the book, and I'll be saying this tonight as well, that uh, there there is a movement in in the world to make some of these changes. And um, they're small scale, and they may not overturn the whole system, but they may be doing some good. Uh, in terms of leadership, uh, again, I have to go back to this political question, and I, I think we're in a time where I'm not just talking about here in the states, but just globally. I, I don't think we have, I don't think we have good leaders, and uh, I do not give my a nod to, to Pope Francis, who I think has made the issue of hunger, has made the issue of climate change, has seen the interrelations, certainly has talked also about the issue of war and peace and how these are all these issues are interconnected. He almost alone, I think, has been, been saying these things. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have, I don't think we have political leaders uh, at national levels who are really getting to, to the meat of things. And that leads, I think, naturally to the focus of much of your reporting and the audiences that you that you serve so well is um, in the absence of effective political leadership or the 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 structural kind of paralysis of political systems. They they can't make coherent policy because many of the decisions are hamstrung by economic rules that they don't have control over. It's local organizations. It's local communities. It's right. it's That's networks right. of religious That's right. communities and institutions. 
tell me about that. That's that seems to be where there's opportunities for hope in your in your in your reporting time and time again. Yeah, I, I mean, I uh, I've been reporting full time for Global Sisters Report for for two years, and I've been very fortunate to uh, on travels I've done to to Haiti, South Sudan, the Middle East. I've had the opportunity to meet with sisters who are uh, really, I mean, they really are at the grassroots. And I think uh, it, it's, it's not just them. Uh, sisters work in conjunction with, uh, with, with priests, with humanitarian groups like Caritas, Catholic Relief Services, Jesuit uh, Refugee Service. These are all really, really good groups. And uh, they work in tandem. They work together. And uh, there is a a Catholic humanitarian network which uh, is trying to tackle these issues. Um, It's... I think people would be surprised by the range of things that churches are involved in in trying to address problems that are this big and this complicated. Um, You've got people working on water projects in one country and fighting expansion of mining somewhere else. They're the same issue. Right. But they're they're, sure. they're not they're not often seen as connected. I'm glad you mentioned mining. Just that that's not a that's not a real focus of of my work right now. But Global Sisters Report we've done a, we've done a lot of reporting in the last year about about mining, and that's another again not to sound like a broken record. The, all these issues are interrelated. But yes, mining is just is another trajectory. And uh, yeah, people would be surprised to know that sisters are involved in efforts. I wouldn't say they're necessarily anti-mining per se, but there's certainly efforts to, um, no, they're anti-mining efforts. (laughs) So I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, given given the predations of what mining on a large scale looks like when it's conducted by Canadian or American or... And what it does. Yeah, to... Soil to water to right. whole towns to, to right. whole regions. I mean, it's it's not a matter of are you for or against it. It's what are the costs exactly. and who's going to pay them. Right, right. Often, you know, mining mining companies don't have an illustrious history. Right, right. So exactly. Let me say, and just I want to put in a I want to I want to put in a, a plug. Um, I hope I'm not uh, uh, harming my. Uh, journalistic objectivity, but I but I will say uh, just from from what I've witnessed on the ground, I do think uh, if I can use the term the Catholic world, um, I think you can feel very um, very good about a the work that's being done and the performance of organizations like Caritas, like CRS, like Jesuit Relief Services, and the congregations. The sisters uh, are the ones I'm mainly concerned with, uh, who are who are doing this work, and I you could I think people can feel very confident that whatever support, financial, etc., people give, it's it's money worth spent. Can you talk a little bit about what you hear from people doing this kind of important work, and as far as what moves them? I mean, this is not social work. This is not do-gooderism of a kind of shallow liberalism kind of thing. The, these are mm-hmm. deeply theological and personal commitments that people make. How, how does that come through? Oh, it comes through. It comes through vividly. I mean, one of the things uh, uh, I think all of us on staff at Global Sisters Report, we try to do, it's, it's usually the last question that you, that you ask 
sisters? You know, what is what is what is the basis for the commitment? And um, uh, there are variations, but it it basically it comes down to a belief that they are uh, not only doing God's work, but that there's a there's a real reference in terms of the ministry of Jesus, and that's uh, that keeps people going and going and going. Uh, sisters, they're a wonderful group of women to to report on, and uh, they're. They're not. They're not sentimental. Uh, they're not. Uh, they're do-gooders. I'll say that. But there. But there's. There, there's nothing sentimental about what they're doing. They're. They're a tough group, and you have to be tough to experience a place like Haiti or South Sudan. Um, they're not naive about people or about uh, human beings and what they do and what they're capable of. Um, but they they do see the good in what these social movements are trying to accomplish, and they just they just keep at it. So I mean, they're as a group, they're very impressive. Speaking of keeping at it, you're you're a rare breed these days. I mean, the the world of journalism <laughs> has changed so much. Traditional flagship yeah. media institutions have closed. Foreign reporting bureaus sure. they are. Sure. You know the the move toward take your pick uh, round the clock Kardashian news or whatever sure, else. Sure. Um, someone in, in a position like yours, you you've seen big changes, I'm sure, in how information and how reporting is is done in the absence of kind of the the old way of doing things. I was wondering what you could you know if you could tell us about what that's like. Well, uh, I, Michael, how old are you? Fifty nine. Fifty nine. All right. I'm I'm turning fifty eight. In a in a couple of weeks. So I we're, I I figured we were we, we were contemporaries. Um, yeah. I mean, I in some ways I feel like a I feel like a dinosaur, and yet I do uh, I do count myself as very I don't want to use lucky, but very fortunate that I'm doing the kind of reporting I'd, I'd always wanted to do, and that uh, some of us are still doing it. Um, it is it is a, a niche. Uh, Global Sisters Report is funded by the Hilton Foundation. Uh, we, um, we're able to actually do – let me put it this way. Yes, we're in a new environment, and so part of this new environment is this sort of niche reporting. And much of it um, is funded by foundations. So this is, this is a model that others are um, uh, subscribing to. But what it does is that it allows us to do the old-fashioned thing. And the old-fashioned thing is to go to a place and knock on doors. And this is not done on the phone. This is not done uh, you know, via email. Uh, I mean, we rely on that as, every, as everyone does. But the actual nitty-gritty reporting uh, involves going to places and talking to people. And that, that's deeply, deeply satisfying. And the fact that we're, we get to work, well, cover sisters, but we, you, we have to rely on them for contacts, et cetera. The fact that we're able to work with such a wonderful group of women makes it, makes it all, the, all the more better. I mean, the irony for someone on the outside is that in working primarily with religious media, which to outsiders might sound constrained in some respect or another. You have much more freedom to report than people who are 
working for secular media of print or broadcasting whose whose editors are are unforgiving about what constitutes newsworthiness and you working for working in a in an environment of religious publications based on the reporting i've seen you get to do a lot of things they're not able to able to manage Oh, I think that's I think that's true. I, and again, I count myself very, very fortunate. I, I will say we have we have a wonderful staff and uh, really really fine editors and uh, NCR is a wonderfully run place. Um, but we have the very highest of standards. Um, so I don't want to. I don't think anyone should leave here feeling that religious reporting is somehow not held to the same standard that secular reporting is. And I, that, that's not what you were implying, but I just want to reiterate, it's, we, we, have, we work under very, very, very high standards. But, yes, it is true. We, uh, I think, I don't want to say we get away with a lot, but we, in terms of subject matter, but we do have a particular angle and, and, and vision, and this covering sisters, you can't help but be concerned about these issues of social justice. I would imagine being a humanitarian journalist is a fairly dangerous occupation in certain parts of the world these days. Um, you don't want to be reporting on the narcotraficantes in Mexico. Apparently, you don't want to be reporting on financial crimes in Malta these days. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a dangerous world to do what you do. How do you how do you keep your how do you keep your sanity and your wits about you it's uh, i will say when since since our focus is on what catholic sisters are doing uh, again getting back to what i was saying about how they how they work uh, they tend to be a very very careful lot so i'm not i'm i'm not so concerned about personal safety um it is true these places that I've been to you certainly have to be have to be cautious obviously um, and you have to yeah you have to go by your wits uh, just a couple of weeks ago I was the last day I was in Haiti the president I mentioned the new president he's been uh, facing some steep street protests on uh, some uh, increasing taxes. And uh, what that's done is uh, led to protests involving burning tires on the street, uh, kids throwing rocks, et cetera. So now that may not sound like much, but my driver and I, we were not far from the Dominican border, uh, going to an interview with a sister. We saw tires burning. We saw kids throwing, uh, you know, some pretty heavy rock action uh, against vehicles. Uh, it wasn't worth, uh, you know, wasn't worth uh, going any further. So we turned around. That's in the world of journalism. That's that's next to nothing. But it does illustrate there are places that are that are risky at 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 some level, and you just. Uh, you you don't have to be covering a battle to be in danger. You, no, it can no, be no, the no. subject matter you're dealing with, whose toes you're stepping on. Um, it's a whole range of things that. And are, and there is uh, yeah one of the things I um, one of the things I did uh, the last the last day I was actually in, in South Sudan I had an interview with. Uh, bishop Santo I'm not, uh, Dogali, who is the auxiliary bishop of Juba, he's been very, very outspoken about uh, the situation there and been very outspoken about the government of South Sudan. 
And uh, by the way, the president of South Sudan is, uh, is Catholic. Um, so I think the bishop feels he can nudge the president a bit, but he's been a, almost, I think, frighteningly um, outspoken in what he has said. And uh, I did a piece right right when I got back to the States, uh, quoted the bishop. Uh, I think it was fine. I didn't hear back from him that, that, that there was any problem. He's been uh, very, very, very outspoken. You do wonder about someone's safety in that in that in that context and so i may be i may be okay but you always have that concern about who you're writing about and their safety um i'm not so worried about my safety and the focus should not be on my safety the focus should be on the security uh, or insecurity in a place like south sudan and how that affects citizens how that affects clergy uh, well well taken and you're reporting generally I think puts the emphasis on work done by local people on local problems. It's not a matter of giving pride of place to foreign volunteers or institutions. It's overwhelmingly local people being creative and being and being courageous in the face of what would seem to be insuperable problems for so for so so many people. That's what we try to do. Yeah, that's what we try to do. What's coming up next for you? Uh, oh, it's been a busy, it's been a busy year. Um, the next assignment, uh, I think we're looking at a, uh, a return, not to the Middle East, but a return to the subject of the uh, migration question uh, from the Middle East. Uh, we're looking at a, an assignment, I think it probably won't happen until after the first of the year, but going to Europe and seeing how, how communities are... Um, Taking in or not taking in um, people from the Middle East, uh, the recent migrants, and how the communities of sisters are, are working on that problem. Okay. Well, Chris Herlinger, thank you for your work with Global Sisters Report, for your books on places ranging from Haiti, South Sudan, and points in between. And um, thank, you, thank you for making time for us. Michael, it was a pleasure. Great to be here. Near and Far is produced by the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology, a research institute focused on Catholicism around the world with special attention to the church in the so-called Global South. The center is sponsored by DePaul University, a Catholic university in the Vincentian tradition in Chicago. Production assistance for Near and Far comes from Greg Barker, Anna Gallen, Francis Salino, and Karen Kraft. For more information on the center and its activities, Look for the Center for World Catholicism on the web, Facebook, or Twitter.